Cade Mila Falta. Welcome to the Letter from Ireland show, where we travel in the footsteps of your Irish ancestors, visiting their homelands and telling their stories as they put down roots in so many places around the world. Falta Stock. Welcome in and hello everybody. Karina here. You're listening to the Letter from Ireland show series 3 episode 10. Thanks for tuning in this week, but I'll have to issue a warning as we have a Halloween show in store for you. And if you're easily scared, you might need to turn away now. We're going to have a look at the customs and traditions of your Irish ancestors as autumn slips into winter. Before I start in today's show, I want to thank those of you who left comments on my last shows. Pam says, I love this episode and all the places you visited. I'm a professional genealogist living outside Boston and my clients would love to take the journey you took in those episodes. And such journeys are the favorite part of my own research as well. Visiting the places my ancestors walked gives me a powerful connection to them. Pam, I had such a great time in those last shows following in the footsteps of my Barry and Cronin relations. And sure, that's what we're all about here on the Letter from Ireland show. We love to travel in the footsteps of our ancestors and bring their stories to life and to share it all with you. If you miss the shows Pam is referring to, I'll leave a link in the show notes below at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 310. Back to today's show, we have some stories about the Banshee, Draca, Pukas and Fairy Forts and these scary characters appear at a very special time in our Celtic calendar. Now when I thought about that, Mike Collins came to mind because Mike is the author of The Letter from Ireland and Mike you're very welcome here to the studio today because I am going to ask you a little bit about the book and your childhood memories for this time of the year. Thanks, Karina. I, I must say I'm just a little bit worried now because, you know, you've got me scared. <laughs> That's what it's all about today. Oh. Uh, looking forward to your thoughts on that Celtic calendar, Mike. Okay. Wasn't this a very special time of the year for our ancestors and they celebrated the season as it turned colder with a very special festival? Absolutely, you know, and I suppose the cycle of each year in Ireland as with so many other countries, and especially thinking about the Celtic countries, though, and they're marked by major festivals as the year progresses. And you know what, Karina, these festivals mark the turning of the seasons, and perhaps they've become somewhat commercial nowadays, but back in the day especially, they were important celebration points. So would our ancestors have marked these festivals with celebrations so during the absolutely, year? Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, you know, if you think about it much in the way that we have four seasons now, I think, well, kind of four seasons <laughs> nowadays, depending where you live. Um, back then as well, you, you kind of had the four kind of general times a year. And in a sense, each festival marched the entry into that particular time of year. Do you want me to kind of go through each one in turn? Yeah, the Celtic uh, seasons, I'd love to know about them because I know our ancestors celebrated them. So wouldn't it be great to just hear, and I know you have a special interest as well, did you not base your last book around the Celtic calendar? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know what? That I found it actually a really useful way of actually, I suppose, dividing up the various letters because each one of them kind of celebrated a certain aspect of Irish life. And often that aspect of Irish life was connected with the time of year. 
Okay. Yeah. So, you know, from that point of view, if you, if you kind of, I suppose, go to the beginning of the year and we'll end up where we are now, Samhain, um, you had the first Samhain. Festival. That's what we're talking about today, Halloween. folks. Samhain and Halloween. Well, let's roll back a bit, first of all, because if you go all the way back to February the 1st, more or less the beginning of the year in Celtic terms, you had the Festival of, of Imbolc, I-M-B-O-L-C, more or less, that's how it's spelled. And that was celebrating the coming of spring. But you might say, well, you know, okay, fair enough, that's technically spring even nowadays. But hidden inside the word in bulk was the word for lamb and sheep. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So in essence, that was the first time that you could actually bring the sheep out to graze because they were typically the earliest kind of animals that could be brought to a certain point. And when the growth was just starting to kind of become a thing on the land, the sheep are ready to go, if you like. So that was kind of in bulk. So, of course, our traditions are linked very much to their pastoral past. That's it. Yeah. We are, we're an agricultural. And farming. Yeah, uh, country, absolutely. And then, of course, you have Bialtana, which is the uh, Celtic festival that signals the start of summer on May the 1st. Or How would you spell that one, Mike? Bialtana. Ooh, uh, let me think. Uh, B-E-A-L-T-A-I-N-E. Lovely. And that's considered to be, if you like, a festival of fire. Because that's kind of opening up to the summer and the warmth of the year and so on. So it's a lovely festival when you think about it, you know, especially if you were living in a damp, somewhat cool country yeah. uh, for many months of the year. So then the actual, and you might kind of see a pattern here, then the actual year rolled on for another uh, three months or so. And we came across the festival of Lunasa. So that's L-U-G-H-N-A-S-A. And that's essentially welcoming on August the 1st, the start of the autumn. And it's named after the god Lu. So, you know, I suppose in a sense it was the start of the harvest festivals around the place. So there you're seeing a bit of connection back into the pagan gods as well with our oh, Celtic festivals. If you pardon the phrase, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? Uh-huh. I mean, everything is just layered on top of what went before. And it kind of makes sense to us as, as kind of, I suppose, kind of people who connect with other people. And then, of course, we come to the time of year that we're at at the moment, which we have the festival, which a lot of us would actually know as Halloween, but we know as Samhain. So that's spelled S-A-M-H. A-I-N in Irish and you'll find it similarly in Scots Gaelic as well which is an actual um, like modern Irish it's an actual uh, d- uh, I suppose dialect is the word of old Irish and this starts on November the 1st and it's, it's basically as I mentioned become known as Halloween around the world and that's the entry time into winter it's kind of a time for starting to look inwards it's a time for kind of shadows around the fire. It's a time for storytelling. Stories, mm. of course. It's a time for a lot of things like that, yeah. So as we slip into those darker months in Ireland, I know we have our own Celtic rituals. Uh, we don't really think of them these days as Celtic rituals because they are part of our pre-Christian past. And it's only when we think about them, Mike, as you've described them there, that we can see the link back into the past. Yeah. yeah. I know that the Festival of Samhain, it's one of my favourite festivals. Of course, I didn't really think of it as Samhain when I was younger. I always thought of it as Halloween. And Halloween or Samhain is the Celtic festival that we celebrate on October 31st. And as you say, it was traditionally the time of year, wasn't it, when the animals were brought down from the higher pastures. And as the Celts entered into that darker time of the year, it had a special significance for them. And this is the bit I love about our ancestors, really, and our past, is that spiritual connection. Because in your book, uh, A Letter from Ireland, Volume 3, where you work around those Celtic festivals, you say that this Samhain, 
had a special significance because it was a time when a doorway opened a little wider into the other world. In other words, a time of the year when the dead and the living traditionally came together and maybe drew a little closer to one another. So that spiritual dimension of the Celtic celebration of Samhain um, is today, I suppose, incorporated into our Christian world, isn't it? I mean, we remember yeah. the dead, don't we? Saints. Yeah, All Souls Day and the next day, All Saints Day. Yeah. So we've November the 1st, yeah, the Saints Day and then All Souls Day. And you know, Mike, one of our readers I'd like to share wrote back to you here. And I, I picked this from, from the letter from Ireland. And she said what Halloween meant to her. And she said, Halloween is a great day, but it has a very special meaning for me. My dad and mom both died young. And she said, I miss them very much. And especially on Halloween and All Saints Day. You know, I think that says a lot, Karina, doesn't it? I mean, that's that's just such such a nice thing to say, because in a sense, nowadays, we think about kind of through TV and so on, there's an awful lot of emphasis on so-called evil spirits and things go bump in the night and so on. Uh, but, but in essence, you're really kind of talking about kind of the breaking down the barriers between ourselves and the people who went before us. And keeping up the link, really, I think, yeah. isn't it, in people's minds and in their hearts. Absolutely. A way of looking inwards, uh, a way of like remembering, I suppose, kind of the happy times together, the sad times together. And, you know, I, I think in a sense, some people, um, and I have had a few comments recently where people kind of say, well, we don't celebrate in our church because it's kind of, you know, but that's kind of missing the point, I think. Uh, so, that you know, our ancestors, the Celts, really had that sense of, well, kind of let's let's kind of get rid of time for a moment and let's just all connect together. Uh-huh. And this was the moment where that gateway opened somewhat wider than the well, rest of the year. That's what I love about Sion. I really, I really like that connection with our ancestors. to hear a sound or Halloween related story. I think I might dip into Mike's book there, Letter from Ireland, Volume 3, which has some wonderful tales based on the Celtic calendar. Uh, oh, by the way, if you'd like a copy of the book for yourself, you'll find the link in the show notes below at a letter from Ireland.com forward slash 310. Now, Mike has written a seasonal letter from Ireland on Halloween, and in the letter he mentions that some Irish families had surnames linked to their own banshee. Well, have you ever heard of a banshee? Or maybe you have, and maybe your Irish surname has its own banshee. Now, wouldn't that be exciting? So, here goes with Mike's... Not sure about that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> thanks mike i know uh i know that that might be a little eerie but why don't we read mike's letter now called the banshee cried the view from above descending into cork airport the plane dropped beneath the clouds and green fields houses and hedgerows came alive in a way that we can never appreciate from the ground however among the regular shapes of the rectangular fields and straight rows Small circles of land stood out in a way that was hard to ignore. These were just a few of the fairy mounds or fairy forts of Ireland. These circles marked all that remained of Iron Age and early Christian forts. They were built by wealthy farmers to safeguard stock and family during times of unrest. They can also be used and seen as old burial sites. Whichever they were, 
They took on a mystique over the centuries and they became the places where we refer to as the fairy folk lived. To upset one of these mounds would bring great misfortune on the farmer's family and so many of these forts remain often a scrub-covered circle in the middle of a pristine field. Now, it's a tradition in Ireland that the Festival of Samhain offers the residents of these fairy forts an opportunity to come out and wander the land for a day and a night, starting at midnight on October 31st. One of these creatures in particular has worked its way into Irish folklore in a way that has persisted well beyond the pagan years. The creature is known as the Ban Shida, woman of the fairy mound, and we know it today because it's been anglicized as Banshee, B-A-N-S-H-E-E. Maybe you have a few Banshee stories in your own family, and do let me know because I'd love to hear, and I've got one of those for you later as well. Mike's going to tell us a little bit about it. Now, I've never heard my County Cork father talk about the Banshee. Mike, this is what you said. You said that your mother in East Galway um, had the language of the banshee quite a lot. She might point out how a certain person had a voice of a banshee and yeah. that this this wasn't a compliment. No, and I think many, many, many of our listeners have actually pointed this out in the past as well, how the banshee stories passed down to their own family. And just to say, Karina, I mean, I, I did notice that in her own family, that the stories that were coming out from my mother in terms of what they heard around the fireplace in East Galway, there was, there was no end to the different types of characters, um, the different types of kind of curses, the different types of names <laughs> you might call somebody, and so on. And the Banshee was just one of many. Okay. And uh, and as you said, the person who had a voice of a Banshee, that was not a compliment. No. However, we were. you said you were never threatened with the Banshee because that would be too close to the bone. That job was reserved for what you call the ghostly poo. Oh, yeah, which also is uh, an Irish word for fairy. Oh, and your mother, through her stories, let you know that the Banshee was a figure to be treated with both awe and respect. There you go. Now, the Banshee was a creature that gave an eerie cry when members of certain families died. And when the uninitiated asked what it sounded like, the answer was... You know it when you hear it. <laughs> Over time, it was also said that both the cry and appearance of the Banshee foretold a death in certain families. Early writings tell of Banshees appearing for four important families in Ireland. They were the O'Connors of Connacht, O'Briens of Munster, O'Neills of Ulster, and the Kavanaghs of Leinster. And she also had, sometimes it was on record that she appeared, that is the Banshee, for the McNeve, O'Grady and O'Long families. In fact, many of these important families had their own personal Banshees. Now, are any of your names among those? And do you have your own Banshee, I wonder? You know, isn't it amazing, Karina, how it's, uh, I mean, would you like a Banshee in your family? No, I don't think I would. You, you if I heard about that for a moment. Yeah, <laughs> if I heard that sound and I, I've heard what it sounds like, I, that queening sound, I'm not sure I'd like it. Yeah. So what do you think of these myths and legends, folks? Would you enter one of those Ireland's fairy mounts during sound and cut down a shrub or two? For me, this side of Irish folklore plays an important role because it reminds us of the presence of the unknown and the sacred all around us. And there is much that we have yet to discover. 
In fact, oh Mike, I see that you included the fact that we have a ferry mound up the up the road there Just from us. Just literally a few hundred yards from where we're sitting at the moment, yeah. Yeah, and neither of us are going to take a, a trip up there, I don't think, on Halloween. No, or Cer- most of the nights either. Certainly not at night and certainly not during Samhain. That might be asking for a visit from the Banshee. Uh, so you said you could hear your mother whispering in your ear even now. That's right. Stay away from there. So how about you? What will you be doing this Halloween? And do you have some of these traditions in your own family? Look, we'd love to know. So drop us a note at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 310. Mike, many of our readers have written in and they've been wondering how we celebrated Halloween and the traditions and games that we might have played as children. I remember the excitement of Halloween in my house. Um, There wasn't much dressing up, though, because we lived in the country and you stayed at home and had some fun and games in your own house. That's true. Actually, if you think about it, trick-or-treating was... It's probably something we saw more on TV, really, wasn't it? Well... I didn't trick or treat, but I certainly had lots of fun at home. And apples were a great feature of the fun. Apple bobbing. Do you remember you got oh, yeah. you got that enamel dish out? You filled it with water, dropped in the apples. And of course, there were plenty of them around at this time of the year. And then you had to have your hands behind your back. No cheating. And when you had brothers and sisters, they didn't allow you to cheat. That's for sure. I actually now recognize it, Karina, as a form of torture that our (laughs) parents were imposing upon us, you know, putting the head under water for a minute at a time as you trace that apple all the way down to the bottom. As you try to grab the apple and try to pull pull it. But the achievement when you actually got a bite out of that apple just by using your mouth, it was just just amazing. We, We also tied the apple on strings and and hung them up from the ceiling again more torture how with your hands tied behind your back hands behind the back how did you get a bite out of that apple again i remember playing that game with our own children actually what fun um yeah yeah what do you think of the barn brack though that was oh yeah that's that's something that um you know I, i i just recently i was quite surprised how it's actually an Irish institution, you know, a thing called a barm brack. So it's B-A-R-M-B-R-A-C-K. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing is, if you've ever heard the word brack, that actually comes from the Irish uh, word uh, B-R-E-A-C, B-R-E-A-C, meaning speckled. Now, a barm brack was basically a special cake at Halloween that we used to actually cook in Ireland or bake in Ireland. And uh, all it was was kind of a yeast type cake with uh, plenty of eggs. So it was a yellow color. But lots of fruit. And lots of fruit to give it the speckled look. And hence the barreen brack which uh, I think is the original Irish. I remember the barine brack or the barn brack, as we say, and all we watched with eagle eyes to see if we could spot anything unusual sticking out of the slices because you had to eat the slice to find what was in the barn brack. brack, And we didn't particularly like the cake at all, but we all wanted to find what the gifts were. And everybody wanted the ring. So if you could spot the piece of paper with the ring shape in it and got that slice, that meant you were going to be married within the year. And I don't know why, as young girls, we thought that was such a great thing, but we (laughs) did. Married before the age of 11, is it? Yeah. Nobody wanted the stick, though, because that meant there was a beating on the way. And, of course, nobody wanted the rag or the pee, because that meant you were going to be poor. Yeah. You know what, aren't they? Kind of the... um when you say it now, you just realize how the tradition of baking those things into the barn brack must have been something that went back for hundreds of years. And I suppose kind of reflect the reality of life for many of our ancestors. You know, this was 
you know, these are the things that routinely happen to you anyway. You were going to maybe be poor for the, yeah. the rest of the year, maybe get married, be rich, whatever. But it was all, all, all good fun. And you know, Mike, yeah. do you know that story of uh, Charles Dickens where he gets to glimpse back into Christmas past? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I would love to get a glimpse Scrooge. back into Halloween past and with see my family there and myself around the kitchen table playing those games again. Good times. Good times. Oh, lovely. Wonderful memories of sound and Halloween. And I hoped you liked hearing about the fairy circles and the banshee and Halloween. But there's much more because many readers of the letter uh, from Ireland wrote back to us telling us their own stories when Mike originally asked this question about the banshee. It certainly seemed to hit a nerve because it seemed that their stories and warnings about about banshees within Irish families across the five continents. Here's a wonderful example of the many wonderful stories that were shared with us. And this story comes from Joe McLaney of Glasgow, Scotland. Listen out for Joe's many local expressions and see if you can guess what they mean. And I'm going to ask Mike if he wouldn't mind reading Joe's letter on the banshee to us. Thanks, Greeny. Yeah, I'd love to read Joe's letter. So here we go. Hi, Mike. Been a while since I've been on. My wife and I chose the night before Halloween for our wedding so we could celebrate with our family and friends right through the witching hour. It's one of our favourite times of year and brings me nicely to the subject of banshees. The women in our family, especially on my mother's side, are very superstitious and, dare I say it, possess a sixth sense. When I was a kid, my mum, aunts and gran would have Halloween parties for us, music, games such as duking for apples, telling stories to frighten the socks off us, and of course, dressing us up so we could go out guising. They were always great fun, but one year sticks in the memory more than all the rest. The night the banshee wailed. I was about five years old and my great-gran was still with us. She always did frighten us kids, as she was a staring old cuss. Very much old school anyway. Now that Halloween was set to a backdrop of candles as Glasgow was going through the regular power cuts of the 1970s and the night brought the worst thunder and lightning I've ever experienced. Perfect. The scene was set. We all gathered around to listen to tales of ghosts, scowls, goblins and vampires. I'm sure the headless horseman was flung in for good measure too. Now eventually, my great-grand piped up with some family folklore about her grandfather's brother and the little people, I think he stole their jewels and gold or something to that effect, who then cursed him, saying the banshee would appear to him and a loved one would die. Sure enough, it did appear and his wife died the following day. And then, just as we all heard that, a blood-curdling wail which echoed throughout our tenement close. Everyone let out their own shrieks and the place was in an uproar. The shadows on the wall seemed taller, the room darker, the wail came again and only it seemed louder. My great-grand blessed herself over and over repeating, It's the banshee coming for one of us, between a few Hail Marys. It all goes without saying we were petrified, but then the electricity kicked in and the lights came on, and we never heard the wail again after that. A couple of days later, my great-grand's friend died. My dad was on the night shift that evening, and he told us it probably was a fox. But I have to say, I've never heard anything quite like it again. God bless Joe. 
Wow, there's a tale from Joe. Thanks for that, Mike. Isn't it though? <laughs> a real one to remember as you're a, f- a very impressionable five-year-old. I'm sure it must have scared the living wits out of him. And listeners, if you have any of your own banshee tales that have worked their way down the family tree like Joe's have, it would be great to hear from you at a letter from Ireland.com forward slash 310. And remember, the scarier the better. <laughs> No sound celebration or Halloween is complete without someone telling scary stories like Joe's above and, of course, dressing up as Dracula. But it might surprise you to know that Dracula may have some Irish blood in him. Our next tale starts with a Green Room member's query about famine in Ireland. Not the famine of 1845, but one 30 years later. And this was the inspiration for Mike's next letter from Ireland, this time on the bloody subject of Dracula. Oh, actually, I might have to push you, pull you up on the technicality there, Karina. I don't believe Dracula had any blood in him. But, uh, <laughs> I couldn't resist it, though. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, now, Karina, many of, I suppose, the stories are inspired by letters from our various readers. And so it was with the next letter as well. And um, one of our good friends on the letter, Des Deneen, was researching the reason why one of his ancestors might have left Ireland so late in the 19th century. You know, as you know yourself, Mandy left it, uh, perhaps earlier during mm-hmm. the famine. The famine times, yeah. yeah. The famine times, the yeah. The famine times, yeah. So he says, uh, Des says, My historian friend in Ardbo, that's in County Tyrone, sent information on about another famine that occurred a further 30 years on from the Great Famine. I'm specifically thinking of a famine which struck Ardbo in the winter of 1879 to 1880. Until a few weeks ago, I had not even been aware of such an event. I came across it in the course of my research on another subject, and I was astounded by what I read. Have you ever heard of this second famine? Yeah, well, you know, Des, it's, it's, it's kind of interesting because I suppose if you think about it, you know, and we talked about this earlier in this, Karina, talking back and forward here, how Ireland was such an agrarian, you know, as in agricultural type of country, and, of course, we didn't have the storage and logistics that we have today. And uh, when things fail, they fail badly. Um, so, you know, it wasn't just all about that particular potato famine in the mid-1900s, but there were some other famines there as well. So, you know, to answer kind of Des's query, you know, it's an unfortunate fact that a bad harvest could cause extreme hardship in 19th century Ireland and, indeed, many other countries. And during that century, indeed, there were a number of countryside potato crop failures, which was the staple crop, and a number of localised failures. So, for example, in 1830 and 1831, the potato crop failed for two successive years in counties Mayo, Sligo and Donegal. And then, imagine this, Karina, the following year, 1832, saw a cholera epidemic sweep across Ireland and much of Britain. So, you know, things were relentlessly tough through the century for many of our ancestors, both before and after the Great Famine of the 1840s. So perhaps I think we'd like to share a very particular letter and it links into our, you know, all about today and sound and uh, some scary creatures and so on. But maybe you'd like to share the rest of this letter with our readers, Karina. How about that? Yes, Mike, I'd like to read that second letter for our listeners. A first-hand view of famine and epidemic. Charlotte Blake Thornley was born in Sligo Town in 1818. 
While she was still a young girl, a cholera epidemic hit Sligo with a huge force in 1832. And this followed on from two successive years of failure of the potato crop. The bodies were mounting up all around her and local carpenters could not source enough wood to keep up with the required coffins for burial. What a horrific place it must have been to live, to see all those corpses lying the streets of your hometown and wondering which of your family and friends might be next. Also, some of these supposed corpses were actually still alive, but too weak to pull themselves back to the living, a horrific thought for a young girl to endure. Now, Charlotte came from two of the most illustrious families of Ireland, the Blakes of Galway, which was one of the tribes of Galway, and the O'Donnells of Tyrconnell. She later married and left Sligo for Dublin, and it is said that she was always a prodigious storyteller, remembering many of the folk tales that had been passed round through her own family. Her third child was very sickly for an extended period of time and he later recalled how she would pass on many of these stories to keep them entertained on the long days spent together. This son went on to write one of the most widely read books in the world. His name was Abraham Bram Stoker and he was the writer who provided us with Dracula. Have you ever read the original book? I do remember staying up late to watch an old Dracula movie as a youngster, eventually ending up watching from behind the sofa with one hand over my eyes. It took less to scare us back in those days. It's thought that Charlotte filled Bram's head with old Irish stories and her first-hand accounts of the horrors she had witnessed during the Sligo cholera epidemic. She also told him of myths such as the blood-drinking dwarf of Ulster, called the Lach Abertuch, or the evil dwarf, whom was killed and buried, but kept on coming back to life. In the end, it was only a sword made of yew wood that killed him for good. Or maybe she told young Bram of the Far Undrach Fola, D-R-A-C-H-F-H-O-L-A, meaning man of the bad blood. Fulla is blood. Interesting that the last two words, drach fulla, are pronounced drachola, very close to Dracula. So, although Bram Stoker may have left Ireland for London in 1878, it seems that he brought a large part of his mother's stories and imagination with him. He published his novel Dracula in 1897 and the nightmarish characters and adventures he detailed took up residence in the imagination of millions of people across the world and still do today. It was a gothic horror novel informed by the stories and first-hand accounts of famine and epidemic by his West of Ireland mother and family, Charlotte Blake Thornley. That Irish connection is not really something we think about when we see that castle high in the mountains of Transylvania. Yeah, I never knew that we had the connection to Dracula until you wrote that story, Mike. But the Drofulla, the bad blood, literally Dracula, it's very close, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And I think that is probably a coincidence, that particular one. But nevertheless, you know, it's there. 
And, you know, an awful lot of probably the thoughts that inform Bran Stoker, I, I'd imagine most of them were kind of unconscious anyway, kind of coming through. Uh, and a lot of what he heard as a child from his mother and I hear perhaps his grandmother as well. So, folks, how do you celebrate Samhain and Halloween in your part of the world? And will any of your children or grandchildren be trick-or-treating and maybe some of them will be actually dressing up as Dracula? Do let us know. Um, we'd love to hear from you. I think, Mike, it might be time to wish all our listeners uh, goodbye, especially with a f- Irish saying for Halloween. Is there something you'd like to say before we finish up? Yeah, there's something I heard once. I, it's going to stay with me. And it's on Sound Eve, light a candle for your ancestors. Pay respect to the roots of our culture, our ancestors and their wisdom. Well, that's really beautiful. I so think it's a nice one, isn't it? Bringing Jill? the ancestors close over the time. That sounds like a wonderful suggestion, Mike. So we'll bring our show to a close with the Irish saying for this time of the year. In Irish, we say, Iha hauna hauna dit, which means happy Halloween to you. So we leave you on today's letter from Ireland show and very much thanking Mike Collins for coming and sharing from his, from his book, Letter from Ireland, Volume 3, and all about the Celtic year and calendar. And so everybody, Iha Hana Hana Dit. Happy Halloween. Just before we go, thanks again for listening. And if you've enjoyed today's Letter from Ireland show, we invite you to check out our special membership area called The Green Room. You can find full details of The Green Room at a letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. And remember there, green room is all one word. The Green Room is the essential resource for anyone at any stage in researching their Irish heritage. It's where we delve into all the good stuff to help you break down those brick walls and connect the pieces in your Irish ancestry puzzle. You get access to online genealogists, extensive research tools, quick win training, as well as member-only access to johngrenham.com and a supportive, active community to help you along the way with feedback and advice. The Green Room is the perfect place to be for anyone starting or continuing their Irish ancestry search. So do come and join us at a letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. Well, that's it for me. And I'll be back next week with another installment of the Letter from Ireland show. Look forward to chatting with you then. Slán Karina. <laughs>